Hello and welcome to the Tillage Edge with me, Michael Hennessy. This is your regular update for all your tillage news and advice. Ireland is well known for potatoes, but arguably more for the failure of potatoes due to blight in the 1840s. The control of blight is every bit as important today as it was back in the 1840s, but the difference today is we are more knowledgeable and we have better tools to control blight. However, factors such as the loss of fungicides and new emerging blight variants, similar to the COVID variants, are all challenging established control practices. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Shay Phelan, a potato specialist in Oak Park, to discuss blight control in potatoes. Shay, you're very welcome to the podcast. Um, I first just want to start uh, by asking you, you might just give listeners uh, an idea about the uh, amount of potatoes grown this year in Ireland and how does that compare to other years? Yes, Michael. Um, so look, at generally speaking, we grow somewhere between about eight and eight and eight and a half thousand hectares of potatoes every year. And that's broken down into uh, about seven and a half to eight thousand hectares of main crop varieties. So varieties like rooster, golden wonders, cursed pinks. And then we have early potatoes. So we have the likes of home guards, British queens would all be classified in those. So we generally grow about 700 hectares of those. And we also grow somewhere in, in the region of about 150 to 200 hectares per annum of, of seed potatoes as well and that has stabilized over the last uh, six or seven years before that we used to grow more but it's kind of stabilized in around that eight to eight and a half thousand hectares over the last three four five years so that's kind of ballpark where we, what we grow every year and and just to just ask you why is it at that particular area now um, I suppose, look, we've settled down to whatever markets that we, we fulfill now. So most of that what product is, is grown there is grown for your supermarkets and for fresh table uh, um, consumption. We grow a small bit of processing um, stuff for, say, the likes of the crisping and fresh chips. Uh, but the vast majority of that has settled down to those markets that, that growers have, have, are filling every week uh, in terms of supermarket uh, supply in that. So those supply chains are pretty static year in, year out. The, the, the supermarkets pretty much know how much potatoes they want in any given year. And we're growing to that market now. Before we used to grow a lot and speculate. Now growers are growing to those contracted markets, if you like. Okay, so it's pretty much a domestic market with no, yeah, with no exports yeah. whatsoever. No, no, okay. no exports. And, and for those potatoes coming to the ground, how are they looking at the moment? Um, kind of a mixed bag, to be honest. Um, as you may be aware, or most people are aware, uh, the potato, the main crop varieties were planted earlier this year than, than normal. Um, so pretty much everything, bar a few guys in the northwest, were finished planting by the May Bank holiday weekend, which is early in terms of, of an Irish season. Um, and then, of course, May came the way it came in terms of we had lower temperatures than normal and we had frosts and we had plenty of rain. So ground conditions got very cold on potatoes. So what we're seeing is that there was kind of a, a delayed emergence in some crops and uneven emergence in, in some crops as well. Uh, but having said that, over the last uh, two or three weeks, the warm weather that we've had and the sunny weather that we've had in the last two or three weeks in June has seen a lot of them caught up. That said, uh, there are crops out there still with a little bit of, of uh, uneven emergence and those later emerging plants are struggling to catch up to the, to the earlier emerged ones as well. So that could have an implication later on the season in terms of maturity for those tubers as well. So it's, 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 it's a little bit of a problem there, but it's, it's not everywhere. It's just in some of those crops. Okay, so generally pretty good. So this year, saying I really want to kind of focus and talk about blight. Uh, and as we know, that's probably one of the most important diseases in potatoes. 
Um, from my very little knowledge, I know there's there's a few changes coming along the line that growers uh, need to know about, and they're probably going to have to adjust what they do as regards blight control over the next, um, certainly in, in 2021 and, and thereafter. There's three or four of them there. There's there's, there's one around um, the, the, uh, the changing blight. And there's one around um, uh, how we forecast blight. But maybe you might touch upon the first one, uh, which is around the loss of some of the fungicides this year. Yeah, so the big news, I suppose, for potato growers this year has been the loss of mancozeb or the impending loss of mancozeb. So the re-registration of mancozeb uh, was going on last year and it failed to get re-registration in, in, at the back end of last year. So basically that means this is the last season that we're going to be able to use Mancozeb-based products. And while most people won't, will probably be familiar with the term Mancozeb, they'll be more familiar with the, with the different products that, that it's found in the likes of Dytane 945, which is probably a staple blight fungicide that many growers that have used for the last 30 or 40 years. But it's also in, in other um, uh, products like the likes of Ritamil Gold, CORZM, and those products would all have been used by most growers um, during the season. Now, over the last, say, 10 or 15 years, Mancozeb-based products have become less important in terms of, of blight control as we've had more newer and better products come on the market. But that said, it's still formed um, quite an important role early in the season as a contact uh, fungicide early in the season for those first one or two applications when the when the crop is small at the rosette stage. So from that point of view, that's going to put extra pressure on other um, fungicide options that we have there. And the one thing that we 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 have to be aware of is that with potatoes and blight, we have we we generally uh, certainly in a commercial situation we have a, a programmed approach whereby. Most growers will apply a fungicide on a weekly or if not 10 day basis. So you're looking at 12, maybe 14 applications during the year. So where you have Mancozeb and you take out two of those applications or maybe even three of those applications early in the season, they have to be replaced by other available products. So each of these products have a limited number of applications that you're allowed to to put on in any given season. So it means that growers are going to have to calculate out how many or where they put the different options that are that are still available and where how they can match them up and what best suits that early early market so they're going to have to sit down with their agronomists and just develop out a full um, program approach and detailing all the different products that they're allowed to use from now on otherwise you could see exceedances of applications of, of certain fungicides and that's never good Okay, we might get your, your your view in a minute, just as regards what that program, a typical program, might look like. Mm. But I presume uh, when when the farmer and the agronomist are sitting down to, to think about that, they also have to consider the type of blight that's out there and the populations that are there. And I believe there are, there have been a number of changes over that in the blight population over the last number of years. You might maybe fill us in on that. Yeah, um, look, the the Euroblight um, Euroblight is is an organisation which monitors blight populations and 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 fungicide efficacy across all the different countries across Europe. And generally speaking, they, tr- they track the different development of different strains of blight uh, over years. So we've we've seen different strains come and go, and we've had pink, pink six and blue 13 and all these type of different strains. But lately, what we've seen is a particular strain called 37A2. And 37A2 is a strain of blight that's uh, resistant to a fungicide called fluasinum. And fluasinum is a very popular fungicide that used all across Europe. It's 
commonly known as something like Sherlan. Uh, it's also in something like Valley, uh, Tisca and Fluazanova. So it's a, it's a very commonly used fungicide. And where uh, guys are using it or growers are using it, it has a it has a number of has a maximum number of applications of ten applications per season, so it is a widely used fungicide. And some of the smaller growers that you know grow maybe an acre or two, whatever it is, this, quite often they would that would maybe do their full program for the year, even though it's you could argue the rights and wrongs of that. But some of those growers, it was a very handy tool to have that they could just use the same fungicide and use it throughout the season, and they were getting reasonably good control with that. But if that's taken away from us now and that's that that's another product that is going to be largely unavailable then that's an issue and what we know is that while other countries are seeing this 37a2 strain uh, develop very quickly over the last number of years up until last year we had only found it in northern ireland on this on this island but last year stephen kildare found it here in oak park as well so we know that 37a2 strain is here in the country so we just have to monitor that situation and if people are seeing blight out there and they're not sure what it is maybe send it into us here we have a limited capacity to test it but it gives us a bit more information in terms of how prevalent that that strain is out there so where people are using and people were normally using sherland late on in the season where it's had good uh, zoospore control so it was giving us good tuber blight control so now uh, we're advising people not to use sherland in that situation um, maybe there's an option to use it early on the season where you're not putting stuff in the store and you're going to have other products coming afterwards. But even then where you're using, or if, if somebody wants to use fluasinum or Sherlin or whatever you want to call it, they should be using it with a partner product. So something like uh, a Samoxanil option or something like that would be a good partner product to put there with that. So that if you do have some blight in the crop, the Samoxanil has a curative effect and will knock it down. So it makes the, the situation a little bit more complicated, not only for the commercial grower, but for those smaller growers as well, who've been relying on the, the Sherland type products over the last number of years. And and changes in terms of those, what, what, I suppose it doesn't matter whether you're a bigger or smaller grower, but um, if I, as a grower, was having relatively good success with Sherland in the past, how do I know that th that strain of blight is going to affect me this year? You won't, Michael, and that's the problem. Um, you won't know until you get a failure. Whether if, and if you have a failure, then the, the, the chances are it could be that 37A2. But because we've been trying to, uh, we've been trying to study the population in the last number of years uh, to see what strains are out there, but we've had very limited number of samples come into us here in, in Oak Park. So we don't know how widespread this strain is across the country. But what we do know from other countries is that when it does get in, it generally sp spreads very, very quickly until it's overtaken by something else. So the chances are, if we found it in Oak Park, it's it's probably in the population. But again, because we only had very limited numbers of samples come into us in Oak Park last year, we have no idea how widespread that is across the country. Okay, so send, sending samples in is, is is critical for the industry to, yeah. to give them an idea where things Absolutely. are. Absolutely. So having, having those fungicides and knowing where the blight populations are, that's kind of two two parts of a, of, of a puzzle, if you like, or maybe a, a three-card trick. The other one is um, when to apply them to get the best from a blight control program. Uh, I think there was, there was new research carried out um, uh, here in Oak Park uh, to try and improve this blight forecasting. Maybe you might give us an idea about where that research is and is it having any impact on the ground? 
Yeah, so as you say, we carried out some research here over the last number of years with a PhD student working on the forecasting system. And to kind of go back on the, on the background a little bit, the, the system that Metairn have used and have used uh, for the last number of years was developed in the, in the 50s and 60s. So it, it was an old model, if you like, and it was based on a couple of parameters that you had leaf wetness and 90% relative humidity for a period of about 12 hours and you had know, temperatures above 10 degrees and that generated a blight warning. So what Matt Aaron did then over, over time was develop that into warnings uh, and they'd issue a, a warning just based on those conditions anywhere in the country. So if there was a, if there was a station which was reading that 90% uh, relative humidity and had leaf wetness and you had temperatures over 10 degrees for, for, for 12 hours, it generated a blight warning for the country. So what uh, the research here has done over the last number of years is kind of distill that down a little bit to try and make them a little bit more uh, user-friendly, if, if you like. So the changes are, are quite small in terms of what you might think are quite small, but they've changed the 90% relative humidity down to 88% relative humidity. Uh, and the period of, of 12 hours of relative humidity can continue on. So if you have, say, 10 hours of relative humidity at, at the right conditions, and it stopped then for a period, but it took up again maybe three or four hours later, that would still generate uh, enough data, enough conditions to generate a blight warning. Whereas the other, the old um, measurement was very definitive. Once you gone, once you had gone by the 12 hours, the, the warning had stopped. The other thing that that we that the the change that is going to be implemented this year is that they're going to be more local local based. So if you go onto the Metairn website and you Google Metairn blight warning, you will see, and there is one up there at the moment, uh, blight warning for the for the west western counties. So Donegal, Sligo, Leitrim, Mayo, and Galway. There's a there's a there's a blight warning for those counties at the moment. Before this would have been a blight warning for the whole country. So we know, even though it's went today, that the blight warning is basically for those western counties. The counties in the south and east don't have that blight warning. Now, what the new parameters will do is they will generate more uh, blight warnings as we go through the season, but they'll be more targeted. So the theory is then that they should be more applicable to growers, whether you be a professional grower or, or a commercial grower or a, a part-time grower. And Shane, just on those warnings, are they kind of for a day or so ahead as the old one was, or are they a little bit more... Um, far-reaching, if you like, seven or eight or ten days ahead. They they're generally issuing them on a on a more regular basis. So it's as those conditions are coming, so they can predict about five or seven days ahead, and you'll see which day that the conditions are going to be uh, applicable for. So it gives the grower a warning that they can spray whichever day that the before the the blight warning actually affects. So they're they're doing two things there. So they're giving you the warning itself and when conditions are go, are good to spray for for blight. Okay, so Jay, before we get into the, the, the fungicides part of it uh, and, and building a program around fungicides, in terms of cultural control measures, you might just briefly give me, I don't know, the top three or four that, uh, that, that a farmer really needs to be looking at to make sure that blight is kept to a minimum. Yeah, and I suppose it's a, it's a full integrated pest management strategy, Michael, is the way we have to go with, with all pests now. So one of the key cornerstones of preventing blight is removing sources of blight and that's the keystone for every grower no matter your size location wherever it happens to be so if you have say potato dumps or, or where you, people might have thrown out skins or, or anything like that anywhere a potato grows 
is a potential source of blight. So any of those groundkeepers, volunteers in cereal crops or wherever they may be, they should all be taken care of or removed or destroyed, whichever the case may be, as, as an initial source point point source for, for blight. So that's probably the first place that, that people should go. The second one probably would be more about the applications of blight products, okay? So where farmers are growing fields of, of potatoes, kind of difficult to reach areas are the first place that uh, the blight will get in. So if there's a, a weakness in the program, maybe a, a boom can't get to a corner of a field or a bend in the field or around a pole or something like that, don't sow potatoes in those areas because they're going to act as a, as a source and a sink for, for blight to get in and a source of infection. So there are probably two main ones, Michael, that anybody can implement in terms of, of, of trying to prevent blight uh, getting into crops. And I suppose the, the thing to be aware of, whether no matter your size or location of your crop, if you have an infection in your crop, that acts as a source of infection for other potentially or other crops potentially nearby. And I came across a case like this in North Dublin a couple of years ago where we had a garden grower growing potatoes beside a garden centre. And the blight in his uh, plot of potatoes spread out into a commercial crop right beside it and continually infected that crop. So even when the farm was spraying it, there was still a source of blight getting into his crop every week. Okay. So maybe then just in terms of um, a, a programmed approach as regards using those blight fungicides for farmers. So at the moment, um, uh, crops are, I suppose, in, in canopy expansion, rapid canopy expansion. Where does, you know, from this week onwards, what sort of fungicide approach should growers be using? Yeah, you're right. We're, we're in the middle of rapid canopy phase now. So if you would think of the way the, the plant is growing at the moment, so rapid canopy phase means that the cap canopy is growing very, very fast. And the target has always been to have the crop met in the rows by the longest day of the year. So that was a couple of days ago. So the crop is putting on new leaves every every week. So at this time of the year, contact fungicides, the likes of the mancozebs that we were talking about earlier on, which are more suitable to the earlier part of the season, aren't really suitable now. So you're looking at something with systemic activity and common products like Infinito, Zorovic, those type of products are the types of products growers should be using now in the rapid canopy phase. And that's going to continue for the next two, two, three, maybe even four applications, depending on when the crop was planted. So you would tend then within that to try and alternate those alternate those products. So if we take Infinito, for example, you would use it twice and then maybe two Zorvix. And I suppose the, the key, or the, the just a point to note about the Zorvic type products, which the oxytiopropylene, is that those give very good control for about 10 days, whereas other products tend to give it for seven days. So what some or many farmers are doing now is they're using two applications of that Zorvic product to give you three weeks control because you're getting up to 21 days control. So they will actually be able to miss a week, if you like, by using those two products back to back. Uh, in the in, in, in sequence. And then when you get to stable canopy phase, kind of mid-July onwards, you tend to move back to those translaminar kind of contact products, the likes of Revis, Ranman, uh, those type of products. Um, and that's fine then. They will, a couple of applications of them are fine then until you get to kind of the August phase where you're starting to see crops in essence. And then you want products that are quite good on, on tuber blight. And that's where our Sherland was traditionally used. But 
again, the advice this year is not to use them in that scenario because if you get blight in then and you bring that in the store, it's going to spread in store. So instead, in that kind of late season phase where you're looking for tuber blight control, again, the likes of Ranman Top would be a good product there, choice in that scenario. And Infinito, again, would be a good, good product choice in that scenario as well. But again, you have to be careful about the numbers of applications. For Ranman, you can apply it six times during the season. For Infinito, you can only apply it four. So you have to just plan out where you're going to put those products over the next six, seven, eight, nine, ten weeks. So, you know, it, it, it's a programmed approach in terms of mixing and matching all and alternating all those products for the next, for the rest of the season, should I say. Okay, so Shay, Justin, and we put a couple of those kind of things together. So um, up till, say, very recently, at least, or up until today, certainly in, in, in Carlo here, weather, weather was very dry and say, a potato farmer uh, here in Carlo, um, there was no blight warnings on, on the go. Uh, the canopy is expanding quite rapidly. Uh, blight isn't due to spread. In terms of the um, sequence of some of those fungicides that you're talking about, can they be expanded if there is no blight warnings out there? Or is a farmer still kind of pretty well bound to that week or 10 days between the applications anyway? Um, it depends on the risk they want to, to incur, Michael. So, as I said before, most commercial growers are taking a programmed approach where they spray weekly, and that's a risk mitigation strategy. That if if the products that they, the products that they use will last for about four days in the crop, and then you're looking at three days, two or three days of little or no cover. So, if you extend out that um, period between the, the the two applications of products, you're leaving the crop at risk for a longer period of time because you really have no cover. Now we do have options there in terms of uh, Samoxyl, which is a, has a knockdown effect. But what can often happen, when we've seen it before, where people have stretched intervals, that you know if you don't get around to a crop or there's a freak thunder shower or something like that, you can get a blight in very very quickly, and then you're into a situation where you're trying to cure that problem, and you end up putting on maybe two or three fungicides uh, or an extra application of a fungicide just to clean up that, that crop. So in that case, commercial guys don't like taking that risk because you're chasing the disease then and it's, it's difficult to control. If you're a smaller gore, yes, by all means, there are definitely cases there where you can say, well, right, I'm going to be able to spray all my crop in a half an hour or something like that, and I can do that. Whereas a commercial gore, it might take two or three days to get around all their crop. But in the case where you're in a smaller gourd, you might be able to do it in, in a short period of time. Absolutely, there's, there's, there's cases there where you can stretch out those intervals quite easily. Okay, so maybe when you're talking about the smaller grower, and, and I suppose what I'm thinking about here is maybe the, the, um, the, the back garden grower, the non-commercial grower, if you like, um, or the non-professional grower, what sort of options um, does that grower have in terms of blight control products at the moment? Because I think... The, the likes of Mancozeb or Ditane probably would have been maybe the core of what might have been used by that um, that grower in the past. Yeah, so again, we're looking, we have to distinguish here as well, Michael, in that Mancozeb products were only allowed to be used by people who were trained uh, pesticide users, okay? So you're talking about, in most cases, farmers uh, and maybe some uh, um, horticulturalists as well. So for, for those type of people who are going maybe an acre on a farm and they're just using it for the, for the house, you still have the other options. You still have the likes of Infinito. You still have, um, if you want to use Sherlin at some stage, you have the option of Samoxins as well, 
which are the, the knockdown products. The problem with all those is, is if you have all those products in the store, they, they are quite expensive and they come in pretty sizable packs, some of them. So you're ending up spending a lot of money on your on your on your few drills of potatoes. So really you're looking at there are kind of some uh, there's one particular product which is um bio potato blight, I think it's what it's called, which is found in most garden centers, which is a small amount of an infinito type product. But again, bear in mind you can only use that four times during the season. But for many growers, that, that that may well be enough um, to get them out. So that's pretty much what, what we're looking at. Maybe mix it in with whatever bit of Mancuseb is still knocking around this year, if you can still use it, uh, or if you still have it. Um, and that's probably as good as they can do for the moment. Okay. So with all the talk of these potatoes, Shay, I'm, I'm starting to think about the earlies, and I'm, I'm, I'm certainly really, really want to get my hands and uh, or my teeth, I should say, into some of those. Um, in terms of the earlies, are they, they're on the shelf, I think, at the moment. How are, how are they doing in terms of yield, uh, dry matter or taste-wise? How are they going? Um, yeah, they're, as you said, they're out there. They've been out there probably a week later this year than would, have, would normally have been the case. And the, the bank holiday in June being that week later probably helps sales a bit because it gave the growers that extra week to get to get them in. But again, no different than the main crop. Those cold temperatures in April and May certainly hit yields a bit. The yields, I'm told, are back maybe 10, 15% in places. Um, but they're starting to look at the, 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 the bug pretty quickly during June. So the yields are probably back up to six, seven tons an acre. So they're doing quite well. Um, Taste-wise and all that, they seem to be okay again. You know, it depends on your on your taste. Some people like them, some people don't like them, um, and they tend to tend to be a little bit low in dry matter in comparison to say something like a British Queen, which will come on in, in three to four weeks. So they are they are doing reasonably well, I'm told, for most guys. But there are some crops out there that were badly affected by frost, and you know they are that little bit later. Okay. Thanks very much, Shay. You're a mind of information, and it's great to have you talking about potatoes. We'll we'll, we'll get you back later in the season to uh, maybe have an update on that because I know there are certain challenges later on in the year in terms of um, trying to burn down or trying to control the canopy uh, in preparation for harvest. So Shay, thank you very much. No problem, Michael. So that's it for the tillage edge and my thanks to Shay for joining me. There's still a number of upcoming events which you should tune into or attend for the coming weeks. The final ECT webinar takes place on Tuesday, July the 6th at 11.30 a.m. It centres around farmers in the south with a focus on Italian ryegrass, blackgrass and bromes from the project focus farmers who are practising plough, min-till and no-till systems. The Oak Park Trials Day will take place next week on June the 30th and July the 1st. You can only attend this by booking first and there are only a few places left. So for more details and to register, check out the Chagas website as soon as you can. There will be a webinar from Oak Park Trials Day in conjunction with the Irish Farmers Journal, which will air on Wednesday the 30th of June at 8pm. This will be available to everyone from the Irish Farmers Journal website or from the Chagas Crops YouTube page. So finally, don't forget, if you like this podcast, then recommend it to a friend or colleague. And as always, rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an episode. And for more information, go to chagas.ie. I'm Michael Hennessy. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week with more tillage news and advice.